The Jewish views on the terror attack in London will bring you community reaction from the leaders and from the CST. We'll have an eyewitness account and try to come to terms with what has happened. Also, Storm in a D-Cup, the woman behind Rigby and Pella on her autobiography, and World Jewish Relief tell us why East Africa needs your help. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the terror attack on the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Bridge. Jewish community leaders have appealed for calm and called for vigilance. Grant Shapps, the Conservative MP for Wellin Hatfield, was among the many caught up in the incident, recalling how he was asked to hit the ground by the police. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, said it targeted the very heart of our democracy and added that it will only serve to unite us against the scourge of violence and terrorism. He said the prayers of the Jewish community were with the families of the victims. Praise has been heaped on the Middle East minister, Tobias Elwood, who has responsibility for Israel and the Palestinian territories and is a former soldier who tried to save the life of the stabbed police officer. A Zionist Federation spokesman said of him, amid such dreadful news, there are moments of immense courage. In Israel, politicians who are long used to such attacks expressed their sympathy and said their thoughts were with the British people. In other news, the former mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, has said he expects to lose his disciplinary hearing into alleged anti-Semitism. Mr Livingstone, who claimed Adolf Hitler was a Zionist, was suspended from the Labour Party nearly a year ago. He told a radio news programme that he will challenge the result in court. Jonathan Turner, from UK Lawyers for Israel, said Mr Livingstone would have to show that there's been some failure to comply with an implicit Labour Party rule. The president of the Board of Deputies, Jonathan Arkush, said Ken Livingstone is an embarrassment to the Labour Party. A pro-Israel academic has pulled out of a three-day conference in Ireland where he was due to speak in support of the country because he found out it would also be attended by an American professor who espouses anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and speaks against Israel. Professor Alan Johnson from the UK-Israel think tank BICOM condemned the invitation given to Richard Falk, saying it was an attempt to normalise anti-Semitism. In Israel, volunteers from the search and rescue organisation Zaka are teaming up with the National Medical Emergency Service Magan David Adom in a collaboration which should increase the number of trained first responders who can be dispatched to save lives at incidents around the country. The chairman of Zaka said he welcomed the decision to cooperate with MDA and that he felt sure the results would be far-reaching. And finally, they've been separating the wheat from the chicks. Customers buying poultry for Passover might be pleased to hear that the birds intended for eating during the festival have been fed a hametz-free diet. What's more, this is apparently not a new thing, but has been around for thousands of years. That's the news. Here's the sport from Andrew. Viv, thank you very much. The top game in last weekend's Maccabi League saw the big Premier Division title showdown end in a one-all draw between Redbridge and Oakwood. The result means Redbridge will be crowned champions if they win all their remaining four league games. Elsewhere, Israel manager Elisha Levy has said his side will look to attack Spain when the sides meet in their 2018 World Cup qualifier. The Israelis go into the game on the back of three consecutive wins, which sees them sit third in their qualifying group. Group winners qualify automatically, while second place will earn a playoff spot. And finally, 
Omri Caspi has signed a short-term contract with the Minnesota Timberwolves. The 28-year-old became the first Israeli to play in the NBA in 2009 and has now played for five clubs in eight years, including three in the last month. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Now, I strongly suspect that people won't be surprised to know that there's only one possible story that could be on the front page. And we are, of course, talking about the terror attack that happened in London this week. What's the Jewish news angle? As all our listeners will be only too aware, there was a a physical and symbolic attack on British democracy on Wednesday. took place mid-afternoon, just as we were putting the paper to bed, changing the front page. It's always very difficult. It's a, a unique challenge, I think, to address a story that isn't intrinsically Jewish, but is obviously an agenda-changing story and means that all our readers and all members of, of, of the British public are, are going to be only interested in this story. So we have gone with the community's reaction. We've spoken to the Board of Deputies, Jewish Leadership Council. There's the reaction from Israel. I think a lot of people that have Israel in their hearts and see what goes on in Israel on a, on a daily and, and monthly basis can recognise a lot of the horror that we witnessed on the streets of Westminster this week with the knife attacks and and the car ramming. It's something that I think is only too familiar to people who look at Israel and see the horror that Israelis have to put up with. Well, that is certainly one of the first things that I think flashes through an awful lot of British Jewish people's minds, isn't it, Justin, that this is the kind of occurrence that Israel has to put up with on, if not a weekly basis, dare I say sometimes even a daily basis, just depending on how hyped up the situation over there is. And now it's happened here much closer to home. It sort of makes the reality for those who perhaps aren't necessarily that aware of it. Yeah, I, I think Israelis, as you say, are are very used to this, sadly, now. And, and when they see it on, on the streets of another capital, I think that they you know, will feel it particularly acutely. An attack like this will always make, I think, people more aware of the realities of life in Israel. But at the same time, you will always have people seeing a difference and trying to say that, that this is Israel and this is a Western democracy in Europe, even though that is what Israel is outside of Europe. And they'll try and draw a distinction. But absolutely, unfortunately, these scenes are often repeated on the streets of, of Israel often repeated on the streets of Israel and, and, and mercifully rare, shall we say, here in London. But you wonder often when something takes place in Israel, you, you do shudder at the, the media reporting, the slanted, often biased reporting that you see. You wonder if, if an incident like this had happened on the streets of Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, a man driving a car, knocking over pedestrians, smashing the car into a wall, getting out with a knife in his hand and stabbing a policeman, what some of the headlines would have been in this country. The priority, I think, and the emphasis would have been a lot different. And often things like this, I think, bring the subject closer to home for British Jews, perhaps more than most. Well, I think that that's what is actually so unusual about sort of when an attack like this happens here. There is no way that this country, quite rightly, would put someone who commits an act of terror above the innocent victims in all of this. It would have been something like Palestinian shot dead after London attack kills three. 
that would have been one way of putting forward what we all saw on our TV screens this week and what we've seen on the front pages of, of every newspaper. Yeah, and instead it was very clear that in every report, primarily you heard about the policeman being killed, then the pedestrians on the bridge, and the attacker was mentioned in, in reports as well, but you know, it was very clear the difference in, in the type of reporting we would likely have seen if that was repeated on the streets of, of Israel. And we should also throw in as well, quite rightly, that we witnessed the headlines being as they were in this country. Anyone with half a sense of decency would obviously put the victim above the perpetrator. That is the only natural way to behave. But let's look at some of the reaction that we've got from the community, because obviously there have been members, senior members of the community who have spoken out against this. And what kind of reaction have they given? Well, there's been the practical, pragmatic reaction. The Community Security Trust were one of the first to call for vigilance and calm. I imagine over the weekend there's heightened security at Jewish locations, at synagogues, etc. So there was the practical reaction. Then there was the emotional reaction. And in the hours that followed, there was some very touching scenes played out across the world, not least at City Hall in Tel Aviv that had a huge Union Jack lighting up the building. We put our, the picture on our own social media and, and in the hours that followed, many, many people liked it and socialised it and, and circulated it. So there's the, the, the evocative reaction of people wanting to express solidarity and express sympathy. And of course, we all need to be vigilant and we all need to be aware and minority communities, the, the Jewish community, perhaps more than more than most, need need to be calm and need to stay aware and have their wits about them. Well, we certainly will be finding out more from that angle when we speak to Mark Gardner from the CST later on in the programme. But Justin, a man who was being hailed as one of the heroes of the hour was the MP Tobias Elwood, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Tobias Elwood is the Middle East minister, someone that Jewish news readers will be very familiar with, someone that's attended now two of the Jewish news conferences on UK Israel challenges. He sprung to the rescue of the policeman who was stabbed outside Westminster, outside Parliament. He tried to stem the flow of blood. He did CPR mouth to mouth on the officer. He has army training. Uh, unfortunately, I, I also read that he lost his own brother in the Bali terror attacks. So he'll be all too familiar, unfortunately, with the carnage wrought by terrorists. I have to say, you know, he's been hailed across the House by Jeremy Corbyn, by several MPs who we're quoting in this week's paper. His own predecessor as Middle East Minister, Alistair Burt, told us that he was one of the best for what he had done and the way he had sprung to the defence of this officer without any thought for his own safety. Well, very shortly, we're also going to be getting an eyewitness account of what happened on Wednesday afternoon. But we are now going to look at one of the other stories in the paper this week, and that is that Sir Mick from the JLC has stepped down after a, a fair old period of time. Yes, yeah, so Mick Davis has been the chair of the Jewish Leadership Council for the last eight years. He came from being the UJA chair. As Henry Grimwald, the former Board of Deputies president, writes in this week's paper, he's a figure who divides opinion, who polarises opinion like no other in our community. And the JLC similarly does that. But I think if you read through all the tributes, and they come from everyone from Mark Regev to uh, Isaac Herzog to the chief rabbi to Rabbi Lorijana Klausner of the reform movement, the, the respect they have for his achievements, his leadership, his vision, 
are immense. You just look at some of the things that have been achieved by the JLC over the past eight years, things in particular like Commission on Jewish Schools, which led to the setting up of pages and more strategic thinking around that, various leadership bodies, lead and other projects that take place that are nurturing the future leadership of our community. So Mick himself actually in a letter he sent announcing that his, he wouldn't be standing again for chair pointed out that it's, it's quite ironic that some of the people around the JLC table have been the people that face the most criticism, people who are not without means but have put those means towards contributing towards the community like no other. If it wasn't for many of the people around the JLC table, we wouldn't have many of the resources, the charities wouldn't be doing the great work that they do. And I think it's important that we recognise that. Indeed it is. Unfortunately, that is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. And I should obviously point out that you may notice that there is a slight change in the advertised schedule to this episode of The Jewish Views for obvious reasons. Wednesday, the 22nd of March, 2017, will go down in history for all the wrong reasons. As people were going about their daily lives, a terrorist drove an SUV into pedestrians as they crossed Westminster Bridge. He then proceeded to an attempt at entering the Palace of Westminster, where he was confronted by a police officer who lost his life in the process. All this before the perpetrator was gunned down and killed by other officers. Well, someone who witnessed the horrific scenes in Westminster is Alex Davis, who I'm delighted to say safe and well joins me on the line now. Alex, please, can we start by you telling us exactly what it was that you saw on Wednesday afternoon? It was in the afternoon. We were sitting in our office having a policy meeting and all of a sudden my boss gets a phone call from his wife checking that he is okay. And we sort of rushed to the window because she told him about the about the incident. Uh, and you can actually see, so my my office is in, in Portcullis House, which actually overlooks New Parliament Square where the, the incident occurred. And we could actually see the policeman being given CPR right in front of us. We could see the car that had crashed and we could see all the armed police running around desperately trying to, in a in a measured manner but in a very serious manner trying to keep everything under control uh, and to ascertain what had happened so that's what we could see from our window we were then swiftly escorted out of the out of our offices and downstairs into the bottom of portcullis house where the most of the the rest of the staff were to try and keep us safe and away from the windows and that you know they were concerned there may be a suspicious car as well that was unidentified and therefore they were concerned there might be a threat from that so we were also kept away from that and ushered away into one of the oldest parts of parliament a building called norman shaw which is meant to be the most secure part of parliament so that's where we were ushered to and we were kept there for about five hours so it was quite a drawn out and and difficult experience but you know I i would be full of praise for the you know the hard work of the police security forces who kept their calm and, and, and kept us all safe. Oh, and so say all of us to that. But I, I guess that to anyone watching the events that unfolded on Wednesday, it's very, I don't think easy is the right word, but it is very simple for us to look on with horror. But would you mind telling us what goes through your mind when you're caught up right in the middle of it? You've got all of this commotion going on around you. You haven't got a clue what's going on for definite. What is going through your mind? 
we know that that Parliament, you know, as a centre, as the bastion of our democracy, is always a target for those that wish to do us harm and those that wish to interrupt our political lives and our liberties. And therefore, you know, very far to the back of your mind, because this place really is kept under very good and secure watch, is is a thought that. You know, at some point something may happen. Obviously, the, the the terror level in the country is at severe, so there is an incident that that may occur as a result of that. Although there is no direct intelligence of an imminent attack, so I suppose that that thought's always perhaps a little bit in the back of your mind. Um, in the immediate sort of aftermath of it happening, a bit of adrenaline kicks in and nervousness. And actually, the really scary moment for me was. We were at the window watching this happening, I suppose, in, in some disbelief. And then you hear these loud thumps on the doors. And that's the, the internal Westminster security forces basically sweeping through the building and evacuating everyone through. And, and that's when things sort of, you know, move very quickly. But my first concern is one thinks of who has been affected by this. Do we know anybody? You know, I then get loved ones phoning, texting, trying to get through to, you know, and then obviously reassuring them that, that we're all okay so it's difficult. I suppose for me, we, we were actually technically watching a man dying as well. I mean, I suppose there's a little bit of that to kind of ponder on, I suppose, as, as we sat safely in internal part of Parliament, considering because we, we were then told that the policeman had sadly passed away. And I suppose that that kind of hits, you know, the raw nerve about actually the seriousness of what happened. And I think we have to be thankful that the swift response police meant that no one else was hurt. Well, naturally, we're all very pleased to hear that you have come out of this in one piece. And thank you so much for sharing what you went through with us. And obviously, all of us at the Jewish Views wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Alex Davis telling his story there of what he witnessed on the streets of Westminster on Wednesday afternoon. The latest terrorist attack has shocked not just the Jewish community, but Londoners to the core. Jews around the world have had to deal with the threat of terrorism on practically a daily basis, and organisations such as the CST are all too aware of that. I've been speaking to Mark Gardner, Director of Communications at the CST, and I started by asking him, how does the Community Security Trust respond to acts such as these? I think if you are responding to the attack that's just occurred, then obviously you're way behind the curve and you're too late. So what I mean by that, the phenomenon of cars attacking pedestrians is nothing new. We've seen it again and again in Israel. We've seen it then exported, as it were, occurring most notoriously in Nice in the attack on the promenade. So we're fully aware of this as being a potential problem. The question of what to do about it is partly reliant upon the architecture of the synagogue or the school where it sits in relation to the street or the event. So for example, when we had the Remembrance Day the Ajax Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women Remembrance Day Parade at the Cenotaph in Westminster, which CSC secured along with the police. So we insisted, it was not so long after the Nice attack, we insisted upon certain measures in order to ensure that vehicles could not get to the crowds at the Cenotaph, and the police were happy to implement that. They may well have done it without our recommendation, but we were insistent upon it. Similarly, at synagogues throughout the UK, I don't know if people have noticed or not, but we try and ensure that there are things, whether it's cars or what are called planters or any other types of, in the parlance, street furniture, 
that get in the way to ensure that nobody can ram their way into these buildings. So this is something that we've been aware of and indeed anybody in the security business has been aware of for a long, long time. And we've taken and will continue to take whatever measures we can to mitigate against it. But then those who ask if you've been aware of it for such a long time, can any more be done to prevent, obviously, if security organizations on a wider country scale have been aware that such an attack is imminent? Could more have been done to prevent such an attack? Well, you always have the balance between what you can do to secure your premises and what the general public requests and also what the politicians and the media agitate for. So I don't advocate that synagogues and schools be turned into fortresses with moats around them and one way in and one way out, but it would be certainly a way of securing those premises. So what you have to do is find a balance between what the security ought to be taking the different threats into account and also what the public and the politicians and the local councils are willing to contemplate and also, to be honest, how much money people are willing to spend on these things. So for example, do you want to prevent parking? Let's say the threat was car bombs rather than cars being used as ramming devices. If the threat was car bombs, which it really was uh, in the early 2000s, would you have the council agree to suspend parking from nearby synagogues or Jewish schools? or Jewish events, would the council agree to that, a temporary parking suspension, or not? Nowadays, we might say, do you know what, actually we want the cars parked there, because they act in a sense as a blocker for somebody trying to mount the pavement. So it all depends upon what people want and what people are willing to do. How much do CST work with national security organizations in terms of maybe advising from a Jewish perspective for national events? Do you work closely with them to maybe offer advice from your perspective? Well, unfortunately, the Jewish community is way ahead of the curve when it comes to speaking with police and government regarding security measures that are needed for our community. And that's because Jewish communities across Europe have faced the threat of terrorism from the late 1960s onwards. So actually what you find is that most of the measures that are now in place from government and local councils are actually developed from the working expertise that CST has led on the Jewish community's behalf since the early 1990s. So the answer is your question is yes in every instance. How much do CST take lesson, shall we say, from the near daily occurrence that Israelis have to put up with in terms of the threat of terror? It's a very good question. We're keenly aware that something that occurs in Israel may well appeal to somebody in Britain who wants to attack Jews. So we're always trying to keep up with the technical term, the modus operandi of the terrorists. For example, attacks by cars were seen in Israel basically before they were seen in Europe. Similarly, attacks with knives seen in Israel before they were seen in Europe. So our security measures always take into account whatever we can see in terrorist modus operandi around the world. But there are two that are the most important for us. One is in Israel and the other is what we see occurring in the UK and nearby in in mainland Europe. Just finally, there will be people who are naturally and understandably shaken by the events that have happened in London this week. What advice would you give to somebody who maybe has an element of trepidation in their step before they even think of leaving the house, always looking over their shoulder? What should they be doing? Every person will react to the threat of terrorism in their own way, based upon their own personality and their own life experience, similar to the way that communities react to threats against them. So it's very difficult for CST to instruct people how to think, how to behave, how to react to these things. We hope 
the, the existence of CST and the fact that we work so closely with police and all of the Jewish locations across the UK give people confidence and an emotional resilience, as it were, to continue leading the Jewish life of their choice. CST doesn't exist to publicize anti-Semitism. CST exists to facilitate Jewish life. So we very much hope that our existence empowers people, gives people, if they want, an opportunity to actually do something about it by joining CST or by joining local team security road to work at synagogues, at schools, etc., etc. I really, really would be desperately upset if the existence of security measures made people too afraid to lead a Jewish life because, as I say, our purpose is to facilitate Jewish life, to encourage Jewish life, and to empower people to play their part in opposing anti-Semitism and also in helping to combat terrorism because we need eyes and ears out on the streets reporting suspicious activities so that these things can be nipped in the bud before they're in the actual attack stage. Mark Gardner, Director of Communications at the Community Security Trust, talking to me there in response to the terrorist attack witnessed in London on Wednesday afternoon. Still to come on this edition of The Jewish Views, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz, and Rabbi Morris Michaels of Aylith Garden Synagogue. They'll be discussing the only subject on everyone's minds at the moment, the terror attack in London. Plus, community editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Richard Verber from World Jewish Relief about their East Africa food crisis appeal. But first, it's time to take a bit of a breather from some of the heavier subjects in the news this week. The lady behind the success of lingerie chain Rigby and Pella, June Kenton, has released her autobiography. It's brilliantly titled Storm in a D-Cup, and arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to June to find out more about it. Kate started by asking June to tell us if she'd had a Jewish upbringing. Of course, <laughs> absolutely Jewish, very Jewish in fact, very lovely, had a wonderful home and a wonderful growing up, it was brilliant. What did your folks do? My folks were in the retail business, so I've really followed on from them, but they've all, we've always had a retail shops. Right, so you, you went to school in London? No, I went to school in Hawkehurst in Kent. I went to boarding school for seven years. It was the making of me. And how was that? Because when the war finished, uh, uh, when I was nine, I was living in Newbury for five years. And then my father said, well, obviously you you leave the, the Newbury Girls' School and you come to school in London. And I didn't want to go to school in London. I wanted to learn to ride and I wanted to have a country upbringing. So I decided at nine, which was too young, really, to go to boarding school. Gosh, that is very young. And how did you then move into the family business, the retail trade? What was that, actually, the family business? Well, when I was 16, because my parents didn't think I would get any O-levels, I don't know what they were called, what you call them now, which I got them all, but they had said that I was leaving. So at 16, I left school, which was awful because I didn't want to leave school. I wanted to stay on. Right. And what was the family business? What You said it was retail. Uh, we sold blouses and sweaters and trousers and skirts, all outerwear. And we had a little bit of underwear and we had a lot of tights, stockings. And tights were, were a very major thing for us. Was there any training for you or did you just go straight into the shop? 
oh, I just straight into the shop, you know, the family business come in, you know, around 10 shillings a week and get on with it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I... I didn't mind it. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But my parents sent me to the Burley Corsetry School for a week. And so at least I learned how to put bras on. And it's what I know now, which is wonderful. So that's how you, so to speak, got into underwear. A bit, yeah. yeah. Yes. So you decided then you were going to focus on ladies' undergarments. By that time I was married and we had market shops in Brixton and we had uh, we were in the Market Street in Croydon. And we were doing really, really well, but we were not doing what we wanted to do, and that's to sell bras and do proper fitting and swimwear under the same roof. What made you think that you needed to do proper fitting? Because until then, I guess... To be truthful, my mother had everything made, so that was different. But most people had no idea what size they were, and to find out what, what you could wear ready to wear was difficult. And so I decided that's what I wanted to specialise in. Very good that you knew that there was a gap in the market. And how did you maximise that gap? How did you, what was your break, if you like? Well, we decided we would open in the Whitgift Centre, which was the first centre uh, that, that was a, a success before Brent Cross. So Whitgift Centre and Brent Cross were the first good centres. And we opened a shop, we called it Contour, And we had bras and swimwear together under the same roof and we did proper fittings, which is what we'd always wanted to do. So when did you become Rigby and Pella? In 1982, we were in Knightsbridge as well before all this, but in 1982, uh, Mrs Sidon, who owned Rigby and Pella, decided that she couldn't carry on because she had cancer. So she asked me to buy it. Harold did not want to buy it under any circumstances. Harold being? My husband. Your husband. And because we'd been in business together all of our married life, he couldn't do what I do, and that's go in the fitting room, and I was no, not interested in the finance of the whole thing. And so we made a really brilliant team. And we decided we would need to go to London. We shouldn't just be in the Whitgift Centre in Croydon. So we took a shop alongside Harrods which is still there at Hands Road. And we were really doing exceedingly well. And is that how you became known in the Knightsbridge area? Because you became sort of fitters for the royalty, for for the stars. How did that transition happen? It didn't happen with royalty. It was only when Mrs Sidon, who owned Rigby and Pella, said she couldn't carry on and would we buy it, of which Harold didn't want to. But I did say, right, I will go and see if the Queen accepts me because a royal warrant is given to a person, not to a company. So the Queen had to accept me as her corsetier because Mrs Sidon really wanted to retire. And so I met the Queen, which was really nerve-wracking but fantastic, and she agreed that I could take over the royal warrant, which was would be Impella. And in the end, we called all our shops Rigby and Pella. Was that not terrifying the first time you had to measure royalty? I didn't have actually have to do anything. I just had to be introduced to her. But you just have to use your imagination how scary that was. Very. <laughs> 
And you did she say that they like a particular colour, or did you did you always no, suggest no, things? No. You don't talk about these things, right? <laughs> so they just they just requested it. And when you're going when you're going out and about, what do you? suggest or when your people come to you what do you what do you always suggest that they do obviously they should be measured carefully well we don't measure anybody ah we we don't have a tape measure in the shop so it's just by eyes eye and that's the only way you get it right because the tape measure doesn't say oh this person measures this but she's got very very broad back and not much in the front or vice versa you have to look to see what figure type somebody has and what they've grown in the front. You can't really do it by measuring them. So the why t- is it all of the bras that we buy, you look, yes. they're, they're all centimetres, 34, 37, <laughs> 37, 38, whatever it is. They're all mm. done by measurement, not by broad back, small, medium, large. No, but, the, but when we go to the drawer, we know what we go to look at. Obviously, in our mind, we think... Okay, she is 34, but I've got to do an F or a G cup fitting. But you don't talk about it. You just go in the fitting room, have a look, come out and go and take bras back in. They're still 34, 36, whatever. They're still normal bras, but we don't measure. Do you find the particular body type that's very difficult or converse, very easy to, to fit? Everyone for us is fairly easy. Because we've got such a huge amount of stock and such a selection, it's very, very rare that we feel, oh, we can't do any better. We can always do well. And tell us a bit about your book. What made you want to write it and um, what can we hope to read in it? Lots of people for many, many years have said that I should write my life story because I haven't just been a bra fitter. I've been involved in a lot of Jewish events, one being Soviet Jewry. I was absolutely engulfed in it. I chained myself to the Foreign Office. I was, we were arrested. I've done all sorts of mad things to make Soviet Jewry come to the fourth to the public. I've been, we went to Russia. I've done all sorts of things in that way because I felt that Perhaps my parents hadn't had known what was going on in Germany. I wouldn't want my two children to say to me, didn't you realise what was going on in Russia? And you did nothing. And so I got involved in such a major way that I was, as we used to call it, being on the streets. <laughs> wow. So you've had a life that's been involved in the Jewish community and with, yeah, and with people. Much. And that's what you're sharing with us. Absolutely. The woman behind the success of Rigby and Pella, June Kenton, talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her autobiography entitled Storm in a D-Cup. As ever, more information can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Don't forget, we live stream the schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. The address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. 
Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, all that information can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, when it comes to Tikkun Olam, or repairing the world, organizations such as World Jewish Relief are right up there amongst those who stand by such an ethos. Their latest appeal, called East Africa Food Crisis, has just been launched, and community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Richard Verber, the head of external affairs at WJR, to find out more. Diana started by asking Richard to tell us exactly what they hope to achieve from this new campaign. This week, World Jewish Relief has launched our East Africa Food Crisis appeal. Unbelievably, we're seeing on our television screens again pictures of mothers unable to look after their children, babies who are quite literally starving to death. We estimate there's anywhere upwards of 16 million people in urgent need of support. That support will include water, food and medical care. And so it's with a heavy heart that once again, World Jewish Relief, as the British Jewish community's response to international disasters, has launched this appeal. Do you think there might be an element nowadays of what I can only describe as donor weariness? I think that's a very real concern. And look, we've just gone through the Jewish festival of Purim, where many people gave generous contributions to their favorite charities. We've got Pesach coming up. And of course, World Jewish Relief has its very own Pesach appeal to support very vulnerable Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, which let's not forget is World Jewish Relief's bread and butter, our core work. Every day of the week, we're supporting hundreds of thousands of Jews across Eastern Europe in need. But unfortunately, international disasters don't respect World Jewish Relief's festival appeal cycle. Occasionally, we have to say to our community, who we know are so generous to our core work and to all of our emergency appeal work, unfortunately, we need to come to you again. This is one of, if not the greatest humanitarian disaster facing the world at the moment. We cannot solve this crisis ourselves. World Jewish Relief is one of many aid agencies working on it, but we all can do a little something and we feel that our Jewish values tell us we must do a little something. Two things strike me about what you've said. The first is when you say that it's going to cover East Africa, which countries are we talking about? You're right. The region is enormous. And actually, if you look on the map of some countries that are affected, Nigeria, for example, is nowhere near East Africa, but it's kind of a loose catch-all name. The countries particularly affected that we've seen, television crews in recently, Yemen, South Sudan, Ethiopia. World Jewish Relief is actually looking at a number of other countries, Kenya, perhaps, also Ethiopia, where we're currently speaking with local partners to make sure that every penny that we're able to direct that our supporters gives us, goes into the right hands. It's incredibly important with all international aid appeals to know who your partners are, to make sure that due diligence has been taken place and to make sure that our supporters' money can go that bit further. I think one of the reasons that people choose to give at times of international disasters through World Jewish Relief is because they know us and they trust us. And that's really important. When you mention partners... Are we talking about other wealthier African partners or are we talking about international partners? 
Word usually generally works through a local partner model. When a disaster hits, it can be quite tempting to put lots of ships together or aeroplanes and fly aid in and come to the rescue. But actually what we found is a far more effective way is to actually empower local communities to help themselves. And for that reason, we generally always choose local partners vetted by our talented programming team. Before a single penny is dispersed, we make sure that their values are in line with our values. The work they're carrying out is in line with what we want to do. And then we can actually help the local economy get back on its feet as well, as well as we hope with this particular appeal, helping some of those 16 million people who are in urgent need of food and water. And with Pesach just around the corner, do you think we could all bring this up over our Pesach week or indeed on Seder night and talk about it? After all, we are talking about, aren't we, freedom from? No, I think that's right. You know, how could any of us lift up the bread of affliction and say, Halach ma'anya, and go on to say, let all who are hungry come and eat. And I, it's not for me to guilt trip people into giving. I hope to be enjoying a lovely stay tonight with my family. There'll be people around the world who aren't sure where their next meal is going to come from. And it could be that part of my Pesach giving would be to donate clearly to World Jewish Relief's Pesach appeal. But obviously, if they're able to, to our East Africa food crisis appeal as well. Talking of which, tell me which is the simplest way of donating. I think two simple ways for listeners and readers. Our website, worldjewishrelief.org forward slash food crisis. And if you prefer to make the donation by phone, we have a team on standby ready to take your donations, credit cards as well if you prefer. 0208 736 1250. That's 0208 736 1250. Richard Verber, the Head of External Affairs at World Jewish Relief, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about their recently launched East Africa Food Crisis Appeal. If you feel that you're in a position to donate or you would like more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, that part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and Rabbi Morris Michaels of Aylith Garden Synagogue. The subject today is the one that every Londoner is talking about at the moment, the terror attack that occurred on Wednesday in Westminster. The question is, how do we, as a persecuted minority group, feel about an attack on the wider society, and how has it affected us as individuals as well? Rabbi Michaels, if we may, let's start with you. There's always the question that some people sometimes ask, how does the Almighty allow something like this to happen? I think I would have to respond in the typical Jewish way, which is to say that the Almighty gave us free will and how we use it is up to us. And so we have terrorists taking other people's lives because that's what they want to do with the free will that they've been given. Are you saying then that the Almighty did in fact, when he made the world, he did invent good and evil. 
Yes, there is good and there is evil in the world. We talk about our good inclination, our Yetzir Tov, and we speak about our evil inclination, the Yetzir Hara. And how do we fight this in ourselves then? That is the constant battle that we as humans have to take on and work on throughout the whole of our lives. Uh, temptation uh, is one of those things that really is, uh, is, is a difficult one. And in fact, you could say that what happened on Wednesday is what happened inside the mind of the terrorists who, who, who made the whole thing happen. We have to be careful at the moment when we talk about terrorists because we actually don't have any idea as to what his motivation was, what the reasoning behind it was at this stage. I think Daesh have claimed responsibility already for it. Yeah, I, I mean, so. whether they actually yeah. did they're, or not, but it, they'll claim They'll claim responsibility, responsibility yeah. uh, for, for anything that, yeah. uh, that suits them. Yeah. All we know at the moment is that this man has been on the periphery of the intelligence services. Well, he's been in prison, hasn't he? As a person who has, you know, assaulted on a number of occasions, but not necessarily in a terrorist uh, situation. And that makes a difference. Judy, what's your, what's your oh, feeling? It's, it's heartbreaking, but I can't see how we can prevent it. There's just too many opportunities. And I'm not going to say what they are to give people ideas, but, you know, it's obvious shopping most You know, there's so many things. We can't stop it. We can check people when they're going on aeroplanes we do but we can't stop buses trains shopping centers concerts we do what we can i went to one last week they were checking my bag they didn't look in all the pockets it's just wicked what people so what, are we, doing we give up we no we, we carry on as as normal i flew after 9 11 and I will, if I was going into London today, I would have gone. Mm. And that's what we do. Yeah, I, th I think we have to, in this situation, take a leaf out of the Israelis' book. I mean, you look at the way they deal with situations. How easy could it be for Israel, the entire nation, to become very insular and very nervous to go in? But they don't. They know that if we do that, they win. That's what terrorism is all about. It's to strike fear and terror into people so that they're just paralysed so they can't do anything. And we have to do the opposite. I mean, how often does this happen in England? We have to realise that the last terror attack was 7-7, and that's 10 years ago. So when we say that anyone can do it, you know, it's, it's quite easy. It is. We all know that anyone could attack like you say a shopping mall london yeah. bridges it did have, anywhere is is potentially a threat but we do have to realize that we have got a very very impressive counter-terrorism force in britain and the fact that this is the first attack in 10 years that i know of, certainly the first major yeah, but attack they say yeah. that the the police other than lee rigby um you know we can be successful 99 times preventing them, but the terrorist only has to be successful once. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. It, it seems a little strange that we're talking about terrorism this week, at a time when we are remembering uh, the events in Northern Ireland mm. as a result of Martin McGuinness's death. Yeah. And we went through a lot of terror attacks at that time in the mainland as well as in Northern Ireland. 
I used to travel to Belfast a couple of times a month during that period. You can't just say, I'm not going, because you needed to be there. And in the same way, Adam talks about uh, Israel, I was struck by the telephone calls that I was getting from my family in Israel saying, is everybody okay? It somehow seemed very, very strange. It's the reverse, which is normally the case. You know, we, we're telephoning them. The world is a dangerous place. It's more than a dangerous place. I think that's putting it very mildly, isn't it? It's, it's an extremely dangerous place, and not just because of attacks like this in Westminster on Wednesday or all the other things that are, that are happening, but it's happening in in every aspect of the world around us. I was in a German Christmas market the same day there was that atrocity there. I just happened to be in a different market, a different German market, when they ploughed into people there. You can't guarantee safety anywhere. I think so all you can guarantee is that they worry. will keep trying because yeah. it's every major city now in Europe. Everyone's a target. I wonder if people who don't have an affinity towards Israel, I wonder if they actually are watching the phenomena that has happened over years. It starts in Israel and then it spreads. People can be very critical of Israel and the way they deal with that kind of terrorism but I wonder if this happened again and again to the extent that it happens in Israel I think the whole attitude of this country would change. I think it would become a very Israeli-style attitude. Right. I was talking to an Israeli friend this week, yeah. and she was saying that in Israel, she'll go into a, a shop and the shopkeeper's Israeli and the next shopkeeper is Muslim or Arab or whatever, and they're all treated the same. There's no second class in the people she mixes with. And how friendly they all are, and that's well, really that's good. that's what people As outside of Israel don't see. It's funny you mentioned Ireland, Rabbi Michaels, because I read something recently about how the comparisons between the terrorism we had from the IRA in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and now. And interestingly, we had a lot more terrorism from the IRA than we've ever had from extreme Muslims. It actually said. When we were having these problems with the IRA, don't remember anyone saying, kick out all the Irish, ban all the Catholics. We knew it was a small group. And I think we have to be very careful with this attack, that we don't start blaming an entire religion or a nation. That's a worry for me, because Islamophobia in this country, like anti-Semitism, is on the rise. And oh, yes. This, this, my fear of this attack is that that's going to become even worse. Islamophobia is is a very, very serious thing that's happening in this country, which is extremely unfair. There's a lovely Islamic grocery shop near me. The people who are in there are extremely nice people and are as upset by what happened in Westminster this week as they are at everybody else. It's frightening that people will blame all Muslims, except that there is one argument that I've heard, and that is that Muslims... And maybe some Jews do when there are anti-Semitic feelings going on. But some Muslims decide to keep quiet and don't say, well, we agree this was a terrible thing that happened. That is one of the difficulties that always comes up, is to what extent does one uh, 
condemn, and if one doesn't condemn, then is one condoning? Next week, I shall be with a group of rabbis and imams in East London. We will be talking about everything and anything that impacts on the work that we do, and I've no doubt that this topic will come up. And there will be questions about if sufficient numbers of imams and leaders of the Muslim community would actually stand up and condemn. But if, if an attacker happens to be a Christian, do we expect all the vicars and the bishops to stand up and condemn? If the attacker happens to be a Jew, do we... And I talk about attacker, but I bet it could be of any crime. Do we expect all the rabbis to stand up and condemn? We have to be very, very careful, as Adam says, not to have double standards. We're always very, very wary about double standards that people have towards Jews. We therefore particularly have to be very wary of double yeah. standards against very Muslims. True. And we take it personally. If in the news or we read in the paper that somebody has embezzled or, or done anything and it's mentioned they're Jewish, I take it personally. Mm. And as you all know, I'm not religious at all, but I still take it personally because I'm very Jewish. I think that goes across all faiths and communities. Yes. When something's in about their community, they take it personally. Of course. Well, I was wondering, that, as a society, do we have to take some blame? I don't know whether I... I'm not quite sure what I feel about this, but do we have to take some blame for having too relaxed an attitude towards people having freedom to basically do, within legal parameters, to do, to say pretty much what they want. Are we too liberal? I mean, and I even see this, I'm not talking about Islam here or any particular, because even in Judaism there are certain things that I think, oh, sometimes I wonder if we should be that extreme in our ways in certain things and we should be more integrating. But do you think... The extreme liberalism of, of the Western world has got something to answer for here. There is certainly something in that, because this is what people have been saying, why things have happened, such as Trump winning in America, such as Brexit winning in this country. This is all caused by that very fact that you're talking about, I think. And people are becoming more inward-looking. Is that the right expression? I think we go through cycles. The older I get, the more I realise that that's the case. And, you know, we'll go through a cycle of liberalism and then we'll go through a cycle of conservatism. It happens. We're in a particular period at time now where for those who are more conservative in their approach, this is small c, of course, and small l, those who are more conservative in their approach believe that liberalism has gone too far. And so now what we're seeing is a swing of the pendulum, the, of the pendulum back a little. And we will see more of my concern quite clearly is what happens in the French elections, mm. that they shouldn't go too far there. The strength of the I right take, wing. I yeah. take a lot of heart from the fact that in the Netherlands, common sense prevailed and we have a status quo continuing, albeit with a reduced majority for the existing government. Well, um, sadly, that's where we have to leave the discussion. We could go on and on and on about this for, for ages. But thanks indeed to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbridge, and Rabbi Morris Michaels of Aleth Garden Synagogue. 
please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. On Wednesday, I travelled home from Jerusalem to London to hear about the horrible, vile terror attack at Westminster, an attack against liberty and democracy itself. And my and our thoughts are with the families of those killed and with the wounded. I'd gone to Jerusalem with my son, to run the marathon, a wonderful occasion with a carnival atmosphere. Unfortunately, I got a back injury and I wasn't able to run at all and I had to manage my disappointment after training really hard to try my first whole marathon. I wanted to do something worthwhile on the morning, so after seeing my son off and he ran really well, I went to help and cheer on Families who were doing an 800-meter run, stroke walk, very slow walk sometimes, with their profoundly disabled children. This was hauntingly moving. Groups of five or six family menders, staff from organizations like Ale and Shalva, would accompany a child or a young person, often in a wheelchair or a supportive frame, walking carefully, step by step. The humanity, the love, the compassion, the devotion to the dignity of life were so manifest. The attack at Westminster is just the opposite. Contempt for life, contempt for values, contempt for compassion and the dignity of every human being. Such attacks have occurred across many of the capitals of Europe and we need to keep faith in the face of this threat which is a part of our reality today. We need to keep faith in the profound values of democracy, debate, freedom, kindness, compassion and the dignity and worth of every human life. A reflection of how every Londoner is probably feeling in the light of events this week. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Alex Davis, Mark Gardner from the CST, June Kenton, please do have a read of Storm in a D-Cup, to Richard Verber from World Jewish Relief. If you think you can help their East Africa food crisis appeal, then please do. Thanks to all our other contributors and, of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll find the option to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I would like to end on this on what has been a particularly difficult news week for, I think, everybody. Whatever you are doing, wherever you're doing it, please do stay safe and stay vigilant. But above all else, carry on regardless. 
Let us demonstrate to these individuals that we shall not be affected by their despicable and frankly cowardly behaviour. And let's show that whether you're Christian, Muslim, Hindu or Jewish or any other minority, that we all stand together no matter what. Let's show them that they'll never win. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.